You are listening to the Legal Design Podcast. My name is Henna Tolvanen. And I am Nina Toivonen. This is Legal Talk Out of the Box. Today, our special guest is Stefania Pacera, a designer and pioneer in contract and legal design. For over 10 years, Stefania has been helping her clients simplify, visualize, and make user-friendlier their contracts, policies, and other legal documents. She is the founder of contract and legal design consultancy, Pacera Design, and assistant professor at University of Vasa in Finland. Welcome to our podcast, Stefania. Hi, Nina. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. Hi. Welcome, Stefani. It's great to have you with us. Likewise. Happy to be here. I'm sure many of our listeners know who you are, but is there something you would like to tell about yourself? Something that we don't know yet? <laughs> something you don't know yet? Yeah. Um, I'm an avid karaoke singer. <laughs> What's your favorite song? I don't know. Uh, it's been so long, you know, with a pandemic and a small child in between. It's been a long time, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> Uh, Stefania, how did you become a contract designer? Uh, as most things in life, like interesting things in life, it was a complete accident or uh, or something that you couldn't really predict. Um, when was it? Maybe 11, 12 years ago, I was a research assistant at Alto University. I was working in this uh, research group um, called mind so we were working we were doing applied research on uh, in an interdisciplinary way with on business and design uh, long story short back then we didn't have the words I, i think what we how we would define it these days would be very similar to service prototyping and design thinking so it was about trying to make companies experiment with ideas experiment in the easiest of ways and be innovative so we were trying to create design based tools to help to do that so my boss essentially knew all the most innovative people in finland from whatever the field and that's how i met uh, helena hapio uh, who i think most of your viewers do know or should know she's uh she's a pioneer of a proactive law uh entrepreneur in her in her own right and these days also a professor also at vasa university so actually we've been doing a lot of research together but back then we didn't know <laughs> that's the first time we met and she was saying that uh, she's been collaborating with a graphic facilitator uh, in her contract training And her dream would be that she could use pictures also in the contracts themselves and see people getting excited and understanding contracts in the same way. And um, I said, well, that sounds like information design to me. I mean, uh, I, I don't know anyone who's doing it on legal information or contracts. If not, I really wonder why. So we should try to do some experiments or try to sneak into some research funding program of some sort and figure out how you do it. And if people are not doing it, why? And uh, so this was it. I, I was just curious because what she was describing to me, it was a, it was a no brainer that you could use information design to simplify or present 
demanding complex information. And I was really wondering why, why is nobody doing it? I mean, why, is no, why are no designers interested in that? And how come that no lawyer have figured out that there is this thing called information design? I mean, it's, it's not a secret, it's not rocket science, so why? And uh, so we started doing experiments on that. We were lucky that back then there was a research program called UXUS uh, financed by, by FEMEC. So it was, a, it was a consortium agreement with many universities, many big players from the engineering and metal industry, heavy metal industry, mm. not the music. <laughs> In, I'm talking about like Kone, Kone Crane, uh -huh. uh, Valmet, uh, Ruki back then. So all these uh, B2B industrial um, companies and, and they were trying to, to see how they could bring the concepts of users, um, user experience and usability into what they were doing in their own work. So some work packages were more obviously on design of interfaces, augmented reality, like all sorts of cool things like that. But we managed to sneak in and say, hey, what about the user experience of managerial practices? Uh, what should management do to create a better user experience for internal users and ultimately also for customers, stakeholders and so on. And that's how we managed to pitch this thing about contracts that yeah, contracts are a managerial tool. We, we should improve the usability and user experience, especially in business to business. You don't have advertisements. So reputation is everything. Relationship is everything. So why not contracts? And we were lucky that um, some of these uh, innovative, brave companies just uh, let us experiment with their contracts for real. And then we started doing, I started as part of my PhD to do, to do tests, to do empirical evaluations, to see if this was working, if people were actually understanding better and faster and, and so on. And that's where all, it all started. That's how I accidentally got a PhD too, <laughs> because I was doing research anyway. So, okay, let's start writing papers. Um, so I never imagined that I would work with contracts. I never imagined that I would get a PhD. So none of this was in the plans. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm the sort of person that if there's something interesting, it doesn't matter where it is. I don't have a great world domination plan. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know what, what I'm going to do in five or 10 years, I guess. I'm trying to, if I'm seeing that something is interesting and there's interesting questions or interesting challenges to take, I'm going to take it. That's, that's how I became a contract designer. Great story. Thank you for sharing it. Hey, Stephanie, there is a lot of discussion about what legal design is and who is and could be a legal designer. And in this podcast, we have discussed a lot about what legal design actually is. Our aim is to discuss how to make law better for real humans. And we have heard great insights and learned about great projects that truly focus on making law more human-centric. It will be great to hear from you. How do you define legal design? Mm, I think I'll stick with our uh, legal design manifesto definition. Keep it simple. That legal design is an interdisciplinary approach to apply human-centered design to do the legal world. So to prevent or solve legal problems or to tackle phenomena that 
maybe fully or just partly or even incidentally legal. So I think that if Amanda Perry-Kessar would be here, I, I think you <laughs> attended the, the Legal Design Roundtable last, last month, she would say social-legal problems. So not the theory of law, but how law or legal or partially legal phenomena in real life uh, manifest and what can you do to, to design it. So as many other things, more or less abstract in the world that surrounds us, these things are man-made. If they're man-made, you are designing them. Uh, a fact that there's no, uh, a lack of design doesn't mean that it's lack of design, it means bad design because someone is anyway purposefully, deliberately doing them. So might, we might as well do good design that it's self-aware, deliberate designing of these things and hopefully bring in the, the human uh, at the core so that it's not just uh, a theory or principles or what people should do, uh, but something that can actually be translated into real actions, real behaviors for people. So Stephanie, do you see yourself as a legal designer or a designer who works in the field of law? And is there a difference between those two from your perspective? Mm, that is a good question. That's something I've been uh, I've been thinking about lately. So unless it's absolutely necessary, it really depends on the context. I, I think that my identity is very much as a designer. I don't see what I do to be different what many of my other colleagues working in, I don't know, systems design or service design or any sort of like complex information design are doing. Uh, just the fact that I'm doing it on legal, legal content, contracts, which are also business documents, I would say. They're not purely legal contracts, uh, at yeah. least the one I'm working on. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't think that there, that there is some way of doing that, um, that, some way of working that over time you learn like, oh, okay, this thing is happening in this project too, or okay, they're doing this thing in an unclear way and there's a better way. So there are patterns to solve that. So with experience, you develop your own uh, shortcuts and your own repertoire of like, oh, okay, this thing is going on. Okay, I have a solution for that. But uh, apart from that, I think it doesn't change uh, how a designer works. An expert information designer may be called to work with scientists or uh, doctors or engineers to communicate something super complex. So what you do is to, you have to understand, you have to understand the context, the users asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of research on your own. I think we are the nerdiest of the, of the designers perhaps. <laughs> but we're people that like to put things in box with many little arrows and icons and isotopes, stuff like that. But uh, so that, that's what I've been thinking. Perhaps I'm not a legal designer and in, maybe I'm just a designer that accidentally is working in, with legal stuff, but uh, uh, I started thinking like, okay, who calls themselves legal designers? I, I have no problem to saying that I'm a legal designer, but in the end, I'm mostly working with contracts. So I thought perhaps legal designers are those lawyers who, um, who approach through designerly ways. They, they added a designerly element to their own work. And perhaps if we look at the current LinkedIn profiles of who is calling themselves legal designer, I would say that that's the majority. I think there's a, 
there's a <laughs> that there is a there is a problem in the field that it's very easy to make design appealing to lawyers and uh, encourage them to like to put their feet into this pond but it's not that easy to attract designers into this because there may be well there's many other fields where they can work uh, there may be honestly much less much more fun much less yeah. <laughs> nerdy research intensive work so yeah. you, you need a certain kind of designer it's, it's not for everyone you know yeah yeah you can have Makes super sense. brilliant illustrators but the super brilliant illustrators or the one maybe more on the artistic side or more intuitive they may struggle a little bit to have to read and decode this stuff or or having to i mean even if you're not working with contracts, if you're working around the law, you're going to have to deal with words and regulation and difficult texts or difficult processes. So you need to have a little bit of a knack for that. Yeah. Research oriented or at least uh, high tolerance for reading difficult things you don't necessarily understand at the beginning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and seeing it to the end, what, what it actually means and what you can actually do. Let's do the myth busting about legal and contract design. Um, when talking about legal design, many people still associate it particularly with contract design or just, I don't mean just in the sense that it would be something less important, but redesigning legal information or with information design or visualizations more generally. But uh, as you just mentioned, basically anything a law that takes some form can be redesigned, not just the legal texts. Um, why do you think this narrow understanding of legal design or the possibilities of design sit so hard in, in people's minds? Mm, there's probably a couple of uh, a couple of reasons why. Once I would say is the common the, the the folk understanding of what design is that the people tend to think of design as uh, aesthetics as a shorthand for aesthetics for I don't know fashion for achingly cool Danish furniture for posters illustrations. Already sometimes explaining. Um, to some folks, what the graphic designer does. Like, oh, really? Oh, is that really a work? Um, it, it, it would be dif difficult. So I don't think that there is a very clear understanding of the different subdisciplines of design in the common in the common population, and that's that's fair. I mean, it's not it's not a must. But but then people, of course, when they don't know, uh, especially what are the more abstract things that you could design, like you know, doing co-design or participatory design or uh, uh, research through design, uh, service design, these sort of things, they tend to, to um, focus on the skin, like skin deep. <laughs> so on the thin veneer on the, on the outside and we are visual animals. So bam, that's, that's the visual. Uh, when, you, when people think about design, uh, they probably think about how a thing looks they don't know that certain things when they're well designed they look a certain way because they have to work a certain way so but and that's once again it's fair enough you don't need to to know what's under the hood necessarily but uh, but but that could be uh, the misunderstanding 
is like uh, it's like seeing a car and thinking that it's just the, <laughs> the outer part and not knowing what's in the engine. The other reason could be that probably, well, I've been doing this work for a while. Um, I know other people have been working on documents. So perhaps, as I was saying before, I was asking myself, like, why no one has done this? And perhaps it's, uh, that's, I'm not saying the low hanging fruit, but uh, it's perhaps since word is so in since the law is so entrenched in words, in the written words, in documents, you, you can't, I, I can't imagine at least at the moment, the world of the law without written words and documents. It means yeah. that there's a lot of stuff to be redesigned, yeah. to be fair. So um, even if everyone would say, okay, legal design is just contract design, let's just focus on that. I think there's probably years of work uh, cut out for everyone who's interested in this challenge. Mm-hmm. But of course, as, as you know, as you probably discussed with other guests, um, it's not. There's many other things that you can approach in a designerly way. Uh, you can um, support a facil- um, innovation. You can support and facilitate an innovation uh, process through designerly ways. So you can try to apply it to many things. Yeah. But exactly. the more abstract you go, the yeah. more difficult it is for people to understand or to imagine what, what does a system thinker do? What does a service designer do? What does a business designer do? If you're not in those fields, the answer is like, uh, not really sure. <laughs> yeah. But also, so a contract design is not just about making the contract look nicer or more appealing. And it's not something that comes after when the lawyer has drafted the text and then the designer just makes it pretty. So um, can you now tell our listeners what contract design is really about? Like what you do, Stefania? The visual aspect can be a means to an end, but as I mentioned already before, uh, information designers are really uh, interested in functions. So how do things work? Well, every designer to some extent is interested in how things work. If I build this button, what does it do? If I build this, so what's the affordance of this thing that I'm building? What's the action possibility? And then uh, the whole, let's say, semiotic layer on that. So how do I make people understand that this button does this thing and make them push when it's appropriate to, to push? So it's the design of the function and the design of how you communicate that function in a way that it's understandable. So there's always these two, these two layers that you have to think of. So when we go back to contracts, I really like, for example, other, um, there's another researcher here in Finland called uh, Anna Hurmerinta Hampa, who talks about the, um, the functions of functions of contract. And I think that's, that's interesting. Um, the legal function is not the only function that contracts have. According to World uh, Commerce and Contracting Research, is one of eleven functions mm-hmm. <laughs> of what contracts do, among building relationships, uh, instrument for planning, instrument for uh, selling, managerial tools, and so on. Um, so when you're design, when you're doing contract design, as we said before, design is not only the outcome; is a process. So is the process the deliberate process of designing every possible aspect of that contract so that it's fit for purpose, whatever you choose 
that purpose to be, or at least in what makes the different purposes of contract to be. So are you trying to, uh, are you really interested in overprotecting uh, against risks unlikely, real or unlikely and imagined in this contract? Or are you trying to sell as quickly as possible? Um, if you're designing some contract for, uh, for consumers, okay, of course you want to explain and uh, communicate what they care about and make it easier and so on, but most likely there's going to be a, some legal functionality that you have to check because there are some uh, mandatory requirements coming from law. So is the, the, the function and the constraint of your design space always changes but what doesn't change is being deliberate in trying to find uh, a way to make that contract functional. So asking, okay, what should we say through this contract and how should we say it? If we want to boil it down like very, very, uh, very, very simply, I would say. Uh, a friend of mine told me, but that's the definition of rhetorics. What do you say and how do you say it? Well, but contracts are communication. At least they are. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I, I would still stick with that definition. You have to perhaps having a more um, uh, risk managerial and legal analytical approach to still figure out, okay, what should be the content? What are we trying to do? What, what should we put under the hood of this? Yeah. What should be in the engine? But then you have to also, okay, how do we make people sit here? How do we make people drive this thing? How do we make these people, this thing also look better so people are going to buy this thing? Um, and that's the how. So... It, it, there's both the, the both aspects there's the more technical aspects but there's also the creative uh, the creative aspect that is not just creativity because yeah let's put colors and it's cool but it's a creativity aimed at making it work from a cognitive and behavioral perspective for people who are highly uh, irrational despite what the <laughs> economical and legal models tend to assume. Yeah. We're yeah. dealing with irrational actors and the designer knows that well. <laughs> you can't make things happen to work. You can't necessarily control behavior or expect things to happen just because you write them down or just because you say them. Every designer and every mother of a three year old will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> And I am both. <laughs> Good points. Yeah. So one of the biggest myths in legal design is the thought that if something legal is designed, it will somehow become less legal. For example, if we design compliance documents, some might think that they won't be legal from the authority's point of view if they are written in plain language and understandable to all the employees. How would you reassure people that documents or concepts will still be legal, even though they are designed? Yeah, I would ask them, what do they think legal means? Especially the example that you gave to me, compliance. Compliance, it's all about behaviors. If you, if you, if you write compliance documents and nothing happens and no audit is done, are those compliance do those compliance documents even exist? Exactly. <laughs> so the, the only manifestation of compliance is the behavioral aspect of the people who are subject to that compliance. So if people don't read it, you can have something that is, I don't know, very legally cunning, 
but they, if they still take bribes or if they still put their, I don't know, uh, their password written on a post-it and keep them on the computer <laughs> by the office, they're not gonna be very compliant uh, because compliance is something that you do in practice. So I, I would challenge a lot, like what does legal even mean in a, in a scenario like that? In general, I would say that, um, as we discussed before, there are many functions of contract, but I could imagine many functions of policy, many functions of public service, and it's a balancing act, you know, and I don't think that it's different from anything else you're designing. I mean, designing, designing is creativity and finding a solution against constraint. You're never designing without constraint. There's always more or less a constraint. And if there's some, too much freedom, you go about creating your own constraints because that is what grounds it. That is what makes things possible. And yeah, smart, I would say in the end. So I think you can still make things that are legal. However, you define that in some cases, it may be like, okay, it needs to follow this requirement. Yeah, you can make it follow that requirement and uh, you can still communicate it to people. Uh, there are different strategies that, that you can achieve depending on uh, what is it the thing that, that you're redesigning. But um, it, it doesn't make any sense, for example, in a compliance document, let's say anti-bribery to mention all, all what you need to do uh, and give all the references to anti-bribery laws, anti-money laundering laws and so on, what you need to, to communicate is what you're trying to do is to encourage or prevent your employees from yeah. doing certain things. I mean, that, that's the proof if your compliance program or document works or not. So it, there can be definitely a element of nudging in this, mm -hmm. uh, an element of behavioral uh, design, behavioral UX. Uh, there can be actually a lot of things that you're designing to achieve that goal that has nothing to do with the compliance document. It may be how you, the process that you design to train people about compliance or the design friction you go, uh, you know, every, every month, not every month, every year, BIM, you get a nice model and like, okay, you cannot log in into your computer anymore unless you're um, updating your password. Every, we all saw that, right? That is, for example, an implementation of a security policy in practice. We don't need to see the, the policy itself. We, we just need to find, to, to create our own password uh, against those, uh, those criteria. So that's the same thing with other compliance. You could uh, have different uh, approaches to, to change the behavior of people or make them aware, definitely putting a dusty, 10,000 words in word in some intranet is not going to have any impact on people's behavior. Yeah. So for you as a designer or a contract designer more specifically, what is usually the most delicious or inspiring part of the design process? Like what do you enjoy most as a designer to do? And on the other hand, what are there some um, phases or parts of projects that usually you wish somebody else could do or you could help get help writing from. proposals can someone else do it <laughs> i hate it <laughs> that i don't like but uh well everything that is hands-on i like I, I think there's a you know the, 
in each part of the design process, there's always pleasure and pain. <laughs> so yeah. I, it's a mix. For example, I get very great satisfaction when I finally crack the information architecture of a document. Like there is this mess, all the stuff is around and you're, you're doing research to figure out, okay, what are you even trying to describe? What are you even trying to sell through this contract or, or so on? And reading the, the document and trying to, bring all the topics same with same or communicate things that are dif difficult and sometimes and you usually have a, a couple of days where you're like really like oh what does it even mean like oh please kill me why did I choose this job but then when things actually start falling together um, and you find that organization it it feels good it's like okay now look how it flows nicely um, it's also very nice to when you're doing user research and you're getting some, you know, those, you have those aha moments. You're hearing someone, something in an interview or in a workshop that it's really, it really becomes your North Star. Like, mm -hmm. okay, this thing yeah. is really important and it can help you uh, somehow create framing the problem or framing the direction. And then of course, also when your user, user testing is also fun, like discovering what works what doesn't work mm -hmm. and why like why are people behaving the way that, that they behave why do they like the things they like and that, that's always interesting that's always interesting and trying to it's like a game of chess like okay if i do this thing what are you going to do are you going to push on that button are you going to read that part are you going to find this piece of <laughs> yes no and, and then you go back and like okay and if i do like this are you going to do it so it's um it's interesting to see how you're designing those pathways to, to guide the people where where they need to be or where they want to be. Have you learned anything about law, particularly when you've been reading through all those policy texts and <laughs> terms and conditions? How do you see law? Do you see it differently now? <laughs> I don't know, to be honest. I think I'm a little bit more literate, but it's always a lot of incidental learning, I would say. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to express in an explicit way what, what is it that I know about, about law. I, I think that I know how, how law or at least the, the effects of certain laws or legal work in practice mm -hmm. more than the law itself. Yeah, because I would imagine that after working as a designer to to change the way how to express things in law, you have to actually also kind of know what they want to say. And then you, you constantly, you can't help it, but you have to also. Let's say, just, say, say, it's very, <laughs> let's say it's always very interesting when you go back to the in-house council of the <laughs> organization that hired you and say like, look, there's limitation on liability cap that you designed. Yeah. Let me paraphrase it for you because I yeah. don't think it's yeah. tapping anything of what you're trying to cap. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, oh, oops, it's true. Or like, uh, you put things in this way and then you, desire, you decided this order of application or actually even worse, you decided no order of application. Uh, so and there are these, these um, ambiguities. Uh, mm -hmm. What are you going to do about it? So sometimes it's, it's interesting that when you work with these things, even if you're not a lawyer, if, if there's something kind of wrong, you may pick it up or like, ah, oh, 
you're selling software and you don't have anything said about acceptance of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <Or> <laughs> you're selling goods. There's nothing about delivery. Like, yeah, we're saying that we're delivering. Yeah, but by delivery, I mean exactly where and how and exactly where it, the risk and title passes. And some, sometimes it's absurd that I'm the one having to, to be the stickler for yeah. this thing. Yeah. And the other person, like, no, why do we need that? Well, I would, I would say you need yeah. But but not because it, it's I don't know it's not because of of the law it's because like well yeah. it's there are certain yeah. there are certain risks if you are if this is where your risk and title passes mm-hmm. uh, you want to know exactly where and when yeah that's you actually point. want to reduce ambiguity it's not exactly. just a, a formalism because if something goes wrong then you're gonna have problems. Yeah, it's yeah. It's better to put a nice inco term with a picture to explain when is this shipment delivered mm-hmm. than uh, having to have very interesting conversation later when that <laughs> <laughs> that thing is stuck in the canal of Suez or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. But I can hear you using some lawyering terms like yeah. in-house counsel because I think. Other normal people would have tests as lawyer. Yeah, or judge. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's that's the sort of people with whom I work. I work yeah. mostly with in-house counsel, uh, contract managers. Uh, depending on the type of contract, the, the projects can come also from, uh, from the business unit. So there could be someone yeah. from procurement or, uh, you know, commercial director of a certain business unit. Or uh, with the uh, solution architects that are like, oh, we have to make the proposals based on this document and we don't manage to do it. And we, it takes forever to sell this stuff. What are we going to do? Actually, the, the most, but when you say like the most delicious, inspiring part of the contract design process, uh, when you manage to get um, more than one sponsor, when you actually have those projects where someone, let's say, from sales or from commercial side and legal are actually. Uh, stewarding the project together and they come to you together and say okay we want to improve these things we have buy-in from both uh legal is going to do the changes that needs and internally we're selling it uh the project uh comes from sales and they're the one selling it internally Uh, those are the those are usually the project that that work more effectively i would say and, and that's nice when uh, when you don't have to convince anyone that yeah. this is for their own good, but they already made their own conversations and already mm. figure out that they're hurting in some points and uh, and decided that okay, let let's change what needs to be changed. Let's let's uh, break away from path dependency and let's have a honest assessment and let's see if there's something on the business side that needs to be changed or something on the uh, legal side that needs to be changed, but we are working for the same organization and we have the same mission. That's usually a good, a good feeling to work with people like that. So in an ideal world, all the contract designing or legal designing would be done in multidisciplinary teams of lawyers and designers, but there is often a lack of resources to do this. However, our goal is still to make law better and more understandable and more functional for the end user. And lawyers working with contracts might want to design better contracts themselves. What tips would you give to these lawyers who want to design contracts 
they draft, but they don't have the resources to study to become a designer or work with one. Right. I would tell them to start near home. So perhaps get interested in practical law, especially if they're working with contracts. So trying to rebalance a little bit, reframe a little bit what the meaning of a contract should be or what the what the law, what the role of a, of a contract lawyer should be to help its own organization. Um, if you don't want to design, you can work on language, take plain language courses, uh, yeah. add a, a plain language element to your drafting. And while you're at it, make sure that your, your own drafting as in the, let's say the technical aspect, the legal technical aspect of your writing is, uh, is modern. So don't do copy pasting, get informed of what the, um, of what contract drafting gurus are also saying. I mean, that's not something I, part I do, but if you're a lawyer, you probably want to, to be on top of your game on, I would say on both, like let's say modern school of drafting, like know what your Ken Adams say, know what your Garner say, like mix and match from those people who have spent their life working on these matters uh, and balance it with plain language. Try to find your own way. Try to find perhaps, try to even build perhaps your own style guide. Like This is how we, we draft in this department. We don't use these words. We don't use this, um, this, uh, this type of syntax. So come up perhaps with models and, and, and uh, mo yeah, models to follow. And since I mentioned models, then the, the next thing would be, have a look at the contract design pattern library by published by World Commerce and Contracting. This is a resource that uh, Helen and I, I have um, helped con have contributed building. There are many design patterns. So let's call design patterns are recurring solutions to recurring understandability and communica communication problems in contracts. So. Check, check out that collection, see a little bit, get more um, aware of what those communication problems are and what are the possible approaches to solve those. Perhaps you're never gonna make, I don't know, full comic contracts, but perhaps you'll realize, okay, here and here and here, I'm always gonna make a very simple timeline explaining these things, or I'm gonna make an executive summary, or I'm going to make some swim lanes or flow charts to explain these things. So it, it can even be designed with PowerPoint or other simple tools, but be aware of what else you can put in your communication toolbox. Because I would say that the technical aspect, you know, there's a tutorial just about anything on the internet. If you have the idea of how you want to communicate something, you're going to find the way to technically implement that. So I wouldn't be overly worried, oh, I want to make a timeline. How am I supposed to make a timeline? You're, you're going to find a way. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure about that. But already arriving at the insight that you need a timeline there because it's bloody confusing, that's a step forward. <laughs> great tips. Thank you for being our guest, guest, Stefania, and have a great summer, you and you all who listen to us. Thank you. you Stefania, too. thank you for being our guest. And thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. And thanks for joining us this spring. We will take a short break for summer and we'll be back in September. If you are curious to know more about us, please visit legaldesignpodcast.com. 
or find us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn.